Welcome to the Beer Driven Devs podcast, where your hosts, Matt Goldman and Liam Elliott, share their experiences and passion for technology, software, and of course, beer. So be sure to grab yourselves a cold one and join them for this week's chat. Good evening, Liam. How you doing? Good, thanks, Matt. How are you going this evening? Good. I saw you taking a swig of a beer. We're up, we're back on the beers after uh, our dalliance into TDD, T-Driven <laughs> Dev. That's it. Back, what is it, seven o'clock at night, back into the beers. Yeah. Are you feeling more or less secure after I chat with Nick? A lot less secure. <laughs> it's like that, isn't it? It is, but I guess that's the way the world's going, isn't it? There's a lot in the space of cybersecurity and... We need to be diligent about the security of both our personal and businesses too. Yeah, we really do. And that was an interesting point you raised with Nick was that there's very little in that strategy about the personal side, the consumer side, the citizen side. It's it's all focused on businesses, small businesses, and it is really up to us, isn't it? It is. And yeah, you were talking in there about education and is, it, is there a way that we can enforce or encourage education amongst the corporate citizens? But I think there's also a lot of private citizens that need that level of education education too. Yeah. Nick raised that point about we need the slogan, the slip, slap, slop, or the click, clack, front and back. Mm, I did like that. I mean, you see the likes of, say, Troy Hunt and those guys sort of pushing password managers and a lot more of the security hygiene, the personal security hygiene. Yeah. The problem there is, you know, there's people outside of the industry that don't know those names. They don't, they're not exposed to these people. Yeah. I mean, I am in the industry and, you know, I certainly don't know everyone and all those names. One thing that I do think is interesting do you remember Heartbleed? Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember at the time there was a lot of talk about how it was just marketed really well. Like it was a very serious issue affecting everyone, basically, because it was a issue at the very heart, pun intended, of, of SSL, right? Which is what we're using everywhere to secure everything. Everyone was affected. Everyone uses online banking. Everyone uses the web, mm. you know, with SSL. And it was really important to get people to take it seriously. And people really did because it was marketed well. It had a good name. It caught on. And I think that's kind of a good case study a good showcase of of showing what can happen with cybersecurity and the everyday person who isn't in the industry when we do get it right on the comm side. Yeah, I think the counter argument to that is the Y2K bug. Ah, yes, of course. You you're very right. You yeah, that's spot on, yeah. I'm not not quite saying that, you know, it wasn't a valid concern, but there were times when I remember stories of toasters and microwaves with stickers on them saying Y2K compliant. How far do you take it? You know, it's sometimes it can be then taken to that marketing side and it can be taken well beyond its intended audience and its intended um, target. Yeah, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Hmm. Speaking of balancing acts... As you know, Liam, being in software development, we have to strike the right balance between how much time, effort and money, I guess, we put into different aspects of building a product. And there's lots of different things that go into it. And one of those is obviously writing code. Others are UI and UX and marketing and all sorts of things. And you know what I've realized? What's that? Nobody gives a fuck about your code. Yes, they do. I, I, I see where you're coming from and you're 100% right. The consumers don't care about your code, but there are people out there that do care about your code. Yeah, you're right. And, and I'm being glib, yes. right? And, you know, the company I work for, because you have worked for them mm-hmm. in the past as well. So we pride ourselves a lot on rules and standards and doing things the quote unquote right way. Yep. We've got clean architecture, which we're focused on. We do vertical slice architecture. We, I mean, architecture in general is a big thing for us security, coding standards, naming standards. We make sure we do everything right and we make sure we get our technical debt as close to zero as possible. Mm -hmm. 
We have processes in place to make sure that we're paying down technical debt as regularly as possible. Mm -hmm. Those processes don't get followed as often as we would like. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that's for very good reason. Yep. And uh, I'm probably putting myself in the firing line for that. What I mean is, and I, and I probably don't need to explain it to you because I think you agree, having good code and having clean code and having well-architected solutions and all that sort of stuff, it's great. And we do care about it, but we being me and you, mm -hmm. developers and, and other developers, even ourselves, I've said this before, when I go back to work on code that I haven't touched for a month even, you know, let alone three years, four years, yep. you know very quickly which code you're happy to go back and work on because it's something you've put the time and effort into writing good code and it's something that you slap together quickly. You know the difference, right? Yep, absolutely. But here's the thing. Code that doesn't ship doesn't get used. Exactly. I mean, look, that's a whole other topic, right? Finishing, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Exactly. But maybe there's another argument, which is don't let good be the enemy of done. And you're right. You've got to ship it. If you don't ship it, who cares how beautifully written and well-maintained and easily maintainable your code is. But even more importantly than that, actually, sorry, next in line to that, I think we... As developers and developers that are really focused on clean code and architecture and all that sort of stuff, and developers that take pride in writing maintainable code, and developers that take great joy in coming back to code to maintain that has been well written, maybe we don't put enough emphasis on, on everything else. Because it doesn't matter how great the code is, if even if you ship it, if the UI and the UX is garbage... No one's going to use it. Mm -hmm. And if the marketing is garbage, no one's going to use it. And all these other things actually, to a certain extent, are more important than the code because you can always refactor your code. And if you've got a product that you've released and you've got a million users and you've got revenue, you can afford to spend the time repaying technical debt. If you've got code that's got no technical debt and you've spent all your budget on coding and you don't have any money left for marketing, or, you know, you didn't put any of your budget into UX design and your product looks terrible or it's terrible to use. You don't have any users. You don't have any revenue. So the clean code and the maintainable code that you've written doesn't matter at all and is worthless. I 100% agree with that. And that's the whole premise of the lean startup movement, right? Let's just run small experiments. Let's do the smallest piece of work we can, the MVP that we can, prove our assumptions or prove that our assumptions are actually not true. And let's pivot from there and let's make our decisions based off customer feedback from what we're putting in front of them. So you're 100% right there that if we're not getting the code or if we're not getting our product out there and it's not being used, we're not getting that feedback. We don't know if we're on the right path. We don't know if the the feature that we've spent the last two months working on will actually ever get used. Yeah. You raised some interesting points. Yeah, you know, obviously I think we're aligned on this and I think we can talk more about because I'm really, I'm interested in exploring this. I'm interested in figuring out what is the right balance. How do you make sure that the right effort and the right focus is going into the right parts of your product development? But before we get onto that, I just want to uh, go off on a slight tangent on something you raised. So on, on this lean startup idea, right? You build a proof of concept or uh, an experiment or- oh, I said it, I used MVP, but proof of concept, prototype, MVP, I guess they all fall into a very similar bucket. Yeah. So the flip side of everything I just said, right, is the risk that comes along with that. Because something I have seen firsthand is that sometimes you build a proof of concept or a prototype and you take it to a product owner and you say, okay, we did a tech spike. We spent a week, three months, six months, whatever it was, developing this prototype. We've shown that it works. 
now that we've proved the concept, we need the budget yep. to build it properly and nah, ship it. Mm-hmm. Yep. The amount of um, proof of concepts that I've had to support in production, I've lost count. And they just, they grow, they evolve, and they end up turning into shippable products. But arguably, the shortcuts that were taken to get them into production at that point in time were the reason why it got into production, were the reason why it got used, and the reason why it is now a product that customers want. So to loop back to the very first point, when we when we ship a prototype or an MVP or a proof of concept to production, we developers, we have conniptions because we're like, you can't do that. Like, look at this code. This is, this is a mountain of technical debt. And, you know, you put this in production and, you know, it's going to be pain for us to look after. Who cares, right? These are valid concerns and these are valid things to raise. And it's really difficult as a developer to understand the business decision behind choosing to ship something that you see as, as subpar. Now, it's, it's often easy to think, you know, this non-technical manager type that doesn't understand is making a decision and we feel that, no, 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 we need to explain it better. So you're like, no, no, you don't understand. It's technical debt, but they actually do understand and they're making a, a measured risk assessment based decision to actually ship something knowing that, yes, it's going to cause pain down the line, but if they don't ship it, there's nothing to cause pain with. And, you know, you have this snowball effect and, and, and technical debt increases exponentially. Absolutely. And just to swing this back to another episode in the past, you end up in the space that the Phoenix Project was. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good example, actually. Exactly. And I think that's where it comes down to someone in the position, the tech lead, the head of engineering, someone from the tech side needs to really be that advocate against the product team to be able to have the negotiating skills to be able to say, okay, well, let's negotiate now for the next sprints, the next lot of features or the next lot of work that we're going to do. We need to negotiate some technical time in there. We need to be able to negotiate and say, well, we're not going to be able to do all these features. And ultimately, no, I don't see that as being the junior developers or possibly even the uh, the mid developers. Like that's the upper level, the more senior developers, those that have that authority, those that have that voice to advocate for the team to say, okay, we need to really start focusing now on that tech debt. But it's also one of those things that the more that you make noise about it, the more that you blow your trumpet saying, we need to pay down tech debt, it's the boy who cried wolf, right? You're going to get to a point where those that are making the decisions, your product owners, the decision makers are going to turn around and say, well, no, Liam's getting on his high horse again, trying to eat back a few extra hours for the technical side, but you know, he's doing it all the time. He's crying wolf all the time. Or what's the other one there? That's it, chicken little. You're, you're always claiming the sky's falling in and all of a sudden you don't end up getting it when you actually need those um, those resources. When the sky actually does fall in. Exactly. Yeah. You know, communication and negotiation is certainly a skill that we all need to develop and get better at. Uh, this is nothing to do with software development. I think everyone professionally needs to get better at that. Th this concept of having someone at the, the right level that can have those discussions. These are kind of the, but the original concept of the position of a CIO or a CTO mm -hmm. was exactly that, you know, another level back, right? It, it's about having someone on the executive team at the same level as the CEO, the CFO, the COO, someone with an equivalent level of, I guess, clout and leverage to be able to actually communicate and negotiate and inject the reality of those technical aspects at that level. Now, of course, 
you know, the way that it's played out in many, many organizations is that those CIO roles, CTO roles are certainly way below uh, other executive positions. So it's effectively another IT management role in, in many organizations, not everywhere. No, I completely agree with you there. But one of the things that comes to mind and to backtrack what I was saying before, you know, it's not really the position for your junior or your mid-level engineers, developers to be having these negotiations. Always reminds me of, you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah. And we'll put a link in the notes after this, but that's where your level of confidence on the vertical axis and your your experience, your wisdom on the horizontal axis. And the graph sort of goes straight up to the peak of Mount Stupid, then it drops straight back down as you get a bit more wise and you realize, hey, I don't know as much as I thought I did, which they call the valley of despair. And then it just gradually grows back up to that confidence starts to increase over time. And it's a lot more of a gradual increase up the slope of enlightenment to the plateau of sustainability. And I think those that are towards the end of that wisdom or that that experience level, the, the ones that are on their way up the slope of enlightenment, that are in a position to be able to actually start with those negotiations and to have their experience behind them to say, okay, now's the time that we need to push for some technical debt repayment. And now's the time that we can actually take on a little bit of tech debt. And now's the time we can cut a few corners to get this product shipped so that we've got a job tomorrow. Yeah, that's a a good way of looking at it. I think there's also an an aspect of ultimately there is a product owner and a budget and there are business decisions to be made. And again, like, you know, I'm a developer, I'm hands-on, I want to write code, I want to write maintainable clean code but i'm really coming to learn that it's a decision for a product owner to make and it's a decision for a product owner to say yes i know the technical debt is mounting yes i know that velocity is decreasing exponentially because there's this snowball effect and the more we allow the technical debt to pile up the more the velocity decreases until we get to a point where we actually won't be able to fix any bugs or deliver any new features until we pay down technical debt you reach a point where there is literally a physical limit of, of, of being able to do any additional work on a code base until you clean up some technical debt. The thing is, you know, there is a decision to be made and that is, well, we've got to launch and therefore we have to kick that can down the road. And then there's a decision to be made to say, well, we've just launched, we're growing our user base, we have to kick that can down the road. And then there's a decision to be made saying, well, you know, we've just, you know, made this announcement and marketed this thing, we have to kick that can down the road. And if it sounds familiar, I'm basically telling the story of the Phoenix project here, right? Oh, look, we've all been there. We've all been there before. Yeah, like we said, that book is incredibly relatable for very valid reasons for a lot of people. The point I'm making here is that maybe I'm talking about myself here, but we potentially need to become more accepting of technical debt because we have to ship products and we we don't just have to ship products, but we have to ship products that meet standards and goals. The first thing is, does it work? It doesn't matter how good the code is, how clean the code is, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't do what the spec says, if it doesn't deliver what it's supposed to deliver. The second thing is, how well does it work? Like, does it do the thing well? And then the next one is on the user side. Now, not all the code that we write, not all the products we build are user-facing, but all of them have some user-facing component or aspect somewhere. Otherwise, nobody would ask for them. So how easy is it for the user to use it? How intuitive? How well does it enable a knowledge worker to fulfill the task that it fulfills for them or a consumer? And then the last thing is, does it look nice? I, I used to have this attitude that this was far more important in consumer products than enterprise products because on the enterprise side it doesn't have to look schmick or fancy or anything like that it it just has to be usable and have a good ui 
But of course, that's not true anymore. And that hasn't been true since really the introduction of the first iPad. That was when we had what we called that consumerization revolution. Now, the thing about consumerization was it wasn't what we, we interpreted it to mean at the time, which was, well, people are bringing in their personal, because we're talking about consumerization of enterprise IT. So we're saying, well, people are bringing in their phones, people are bringing in their iPads, you know. And there was always this question, I remember at conferences and, and whenever I'd meet up with other IT professionals at the time, there was always the question of, is your organization doing BYOD? Are you doing BYOD? And that was a, a silly question, really, because those people didn't get to decide that. Their staff, their users, their knowledge, their workers, their workforce were making that decision for them. It wasn't, are you doing BYOD? People were buying these things and people were showing up to work with them. And people were connecting them to the network. You didn't get to choose whether you were doing BYOD or not. You, you got to choose what you were doing about it. I'm way off topic here, but the point is that we used to say building enterprise software, building good quality things is hard to do and it's slow and it takes time. And of course, we don't say that anymore because, you know, we have Agile and we have DevOps and, and we have 10,000 deployments a day if you're Netflix or, or whatever. But that was what, what happened with consumerization because these users were buying these devices and before the mass popularization of Apple, people used Windows and they accepted it as it was. They didn't, it's not that they didn't care how nice it looked, but they didn't really think much of it. And then the iDevice revolution came along and people started to realize, actually, no, UI does need to look pretty. UX does need to be good. And in addition to that, these things can change rapidly. Not only can you actually iterate very quickly and you can release new versions of massive software ecosystems very quickly, every six months, every year. You can even do the same with hardware. So what excuse is there anymore for our enterprise software products to not look schmick and fancy? And I'm talking about this gold plating and the gold plating is important now. And it's important in that respect, because if your staff don't like something, if your users don't like something, we're way past the era now where you can lock someone into your software ecosystem and just sit back and not write another line of code for 15 years and collect the license every year. Because for every software vendor that has a legacy product that they think they've grandfathered in their customers, there are 20 startups emerging that want their business. And you know what? If those startups have a product that can do one-tenth of what your thing can do, but it looks amazing, your customers will want that product. Yep, because on top of that, everyone's used to the frequent evolution of the products that they buy now. Right? Because everything's web-based. These days, you're not even stalling software. It's all web-based. Updates and releases and new features come left, right, and center. You don't need to install the latest one. You just get the new features. And like you said, if it's a startup that's rapidly adapting to their customers' needs, they might not have 100% of the functionality of the legacy system today, but I can guarantee you in you know one, two, three years' time, five years' time, they will, and they're going to going to build it up. They might not have it now, and as they get more customers on board, as they add the features that the customers are asking, they will get them, and the legacy will fall behind. So I want to just circle back a bit because I've just made a few notes here. I've got written down here, one of the philosophies I'm sort of really working towards now is this idea of doing a three-step iteration. And it's based on the, the saying, you know, that premature optimization is the root of all evil. Yeah. You familiar with that one? Absolutely. So my take on that is it's a three-step approach, right? I like to look at things and say, okay, well, the first step, let's just make it work. If I'm writing a function, writing a feature, writing whatever, I just want to get, get it to work. I don't care how it looks. I don't care if it's technically appropriate. Let's just get it to work. Does that function produce the result I want? Then. If I've got time, in if I've got the resources and the time available, 
let's make it right. Right. I can, if I'm doing TDD, I might already have my unit tests around it. If I'm not doing TDD, now's a good time for me to throw a few tests around it to prove that the function works, that it does needs to do what it needs to do. Now I can refactor that function and actually make it more appropriate, make it right, get rid of the tech debt that's lying in there. And then we've now got something that not only works, but it actually, it's functional and it's technically right. Then the last step is make it fast. This is where we can go back in and say, okay, Let's now look at that, the optimization. Are there ways that we can optimize it? Now that step's purely optional. Well, I guess the last two steps are purely optional based on how much time you have, but there's no point in making it fast if you haven't made it right. So I like to just do that sort of three-step factoring or refactoring over particularly the functions or the features that you're working on or the products. Like we keep saying, let's just get it working, get it out there. Then we can look at it and we can tidy it up, make it right. And then we can start to put our, we can put our performance metrics, we can measure it, and then we can actually start to optimize it if it is proving to be a bottleneck. Because there's no point in optimizing it if it's a code path that barely gets utilized and it's only, an optimization is only going to save you 100 milliseconds, right? What's the point? The other few things that I've just wanted to highlight was something that early on in my career, I was working on a project and there was a mentor on there that had some guidelines that we were using against our code base. I always remember there were two rules that he had in there. One was the Boy Scout rule. You familiar with that one? I am, yeah. But why don't you repeat it? So the Boy Scout rule is, as per the Boy Scouts, it's leave the place better than you found it. So I do find when we're looking at tech debt or when we're looking at a code base, if you have to refactor or fix a bug in a certain area of the code and something in that space doesn't look right, feel free to tidy it up then and there, right? And this is an easy, cheap way to start paying down technical debt without actually having to allocate time to it. Now, there are constraints around that. Obviously, you don't want to be doing major functional refactors that end up taking you three weeks to do and you don't want to break functionality but by all means there's a perfect opportunity if you're doing bug fixes and you see something that's not tidy in the code base that you don't agree with maybe that's the time that you can fix it without incurring any tech debt penalties and so the next one that came up was the broken window theory are you familiar with that one matt i'm not no no so that theory is hypothetically speaking you've got two buildings in the one dodgy neighborhood and you know you're in a dodgy area so the teenagers come along and throw stones at the the windows throw one stone in each window of each building now the owner of the first building goes in and repairs that broken window right the owner of the second building doesn't touch it the next night the same teenagers come along and throw a stone in each uh, a window of each building again in the first building, the owner repairs that window. The second building, the owner doesn't touch it. And this goes on for a couple of nights, you know, for another couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, you've got one building with no broken windows and the other building with a dozen broken windows in there. And the theory being that the one that ends up with a dozen broken windows ends up becoming derelict. And that's where, you know, the graffiti starts to happen and it just starts to snowball from there and it starts to fall apart. Whereas the first building where the owner actually took pride in their building, and even though it was empty, kept replacing those windows, it never became derelict. So the idea here is that when it comes to code, if you do see things that are broken, fix it as soon as you see it. Because if you don't, these things start to build up and then the code base ends up becoming that derelict building. Mm. I see those two theories, those two rules, the Boy Scout rule and the broken window theory, they're really tightly coupled. And the idea being you don't have to really allocate time to paying down tech debt 
if you keep on top of these ideas. I do agree with what you're saying. I think there's a caveat to it, though. And you did mention within constraints when you were talking about the Boy Scout rule. And I think there's a caveat that applies to both. And to, to, to keep running with your analogy, let's say you're the owner of the building and you arrive to paint the building and you see a broken window. Mm -hmm. You still have to paint the building. And I think that the rule isn't fix the broken window as soon as you see it, but it's make sure it gets fixed. So I think it's as valid in, you know, to take it away from the analogy and into the code. I think it's as valid to, if you see it, open a PBI or an issue uh, and make sure that's allocated to someone, you know, straight away or even to yourself or after you finish what you're working on, if necessary. Where I'm going with this is I've been mulling over this idea for a while now, and I'm sure this is something other people think about. When we talk about code, well, when we talk about object-oriented code, we have this concept of the solid principles, right? Mm -hmm. The very first one is the single responsibility principle. And the single responsibility principle states that any class or function should serve one purpose, and all the code in that class or function should be aligned with that purpose. Mm -hmm. I think we should have a, a similar concept, a single responsibility principle for PRs. We're going way on tangent here. But I, I think we should have a single responsibility for, for PRs. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that. One of those reasons is it makes it easier for someone to review. Another one of those reasons is it means that your changes are isolated if you need to back them out. So I think this is a, a kind of a good concept. So when it comes to the Boy Scout rule, I'm not saying don't fix things when you see them. I think if you see a line of code or even a few lines of code where there's a bug uh, and you can fix it, fix it and include it. But if you're coming across something and you discover an error or some technical debt, I'm trying to think of an example, but let's say you're, you're working in a, a service, right? So you have a, say a data service or an upstream API service or something like that. And you notice that the method that you're working on is missing something that is a standard way of doing things, how you do them now. And then you see that, you know, all the other methods don't have it. And then there's a problem with the way the interface is defined. And then you see some other services that have that problem as well. I don't think it's a good idea at that point to go and refactor all of those because you're distracting from the single issue that you're trying to solve, the single goal that you're trying to achieve with your pull request. You're making it difficult for other people to review and you're making it harder to back out your change if there's something wrong. Maybe that's an extreme example. It probably was a bit abstract. I don't know. No, I think I think that's spot on. And I think a lot of people would agree that you do want to keep your PRs as single responsibility or single single focus. But I think as with everything, there's a balance. There's a balance to be had, right? Because if you don't, what are you going to do? You're going to create a new branch to do that work. But that is that branch created based off your current branch and then then you end up in a whole nightmare of your prs and all your mergers so i get that and i i do appreciate what you're saying there but i think there's just a balance that we all need to take into account and i think this whole episode is about finding that balance isn't it it's like we said at the start it's a balancing act exactly actually well not one the last thing i've got written down here is just an example of a lot of this that happened to me relatively early in my career that after coming off a really decent project, one that I'm quite proud of. I was talking to a friend of mine and he, you know, he was a developer, quite successful, sold his startup, you know, was and then ended up in the CIO role, CEO role of other other companies and he's still quite successful. I remember talking to him and he was sort of saying, when you're building these enterprise applications and we put a lot of, I think you mentioned a bit earlier, like gold plating around our data access layer, for instance, You've got the repository pattern, you've got ORMs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
he said to me, you know, what's the point? Like, what's the argument? Because the traditional argument back then, and it's less so now, but was, well, what happens if I want to change my database? You know, what happens if I want to go from SQL to MySQL or et cetera, or to another database? And he's like, that's a great argument, but has it ever happened? When have you ever changed database providers for an enterprise application? And that really was an opportunity for me to sit back and think, okay, yeah, like those extra layers of complexity that you've added into your application that sound good at face value to an engineer, in reality, offers zero value to the final product because you're trying to cover an eventuality that in all likelihood will never happen. Yeah, I think this is something that we see in design patterns in general. Mm -hmm. Every design pattern has complexity that it introduces. The question is, is the complexity that it introduces less than the complexity that it takes away? Look at basically any architecture. Some architectures are more complex than others. Look at something like an event-driven architecture in particular. You're introducing a lot of complexity. Now, in that case, it's maybe a bad example because you may not be removing complexity, but you may be providing functionality that you just can't do without it. So let's talk about clean architecture. Clean architecture provides a really great way of writing clean, maintainable code with good dependencies flowing in one direction and all that good stuff. Well, in a nutshell, that's it, right? That's that's what clean architecture is at its heart. There are other things to it as well. But you introduce complexity to achieve that. Now, is the complexity that you're introducing less than, or is the benefit you know, greater than the complexity you're taking away? That's obviously an it depends question because sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. If like me, you work with it so much that it's just lower cognitive load to just use it anyway because you know where everything is, maybe it's worthwhile. But what's your opinion on, okay, here's one for you. What's your opinion on the Redux pattern? Don't get me started. Okay, so it's been a while since I've, honestly, it's been a while since I've touched the Redux pattern, but I found it useful in the world of React for estate management, which is where it originated. And don't get me wrong, I do enjoy working in the world of React, but I prefer the world of Angular because I do come from that MVVM background and it really aligns with the way that Angular does things. And MVVM allows us to maintain the state of our objects inside the model. We don't need to store our state inside Redux. So I feel that Redux is redundant in the world of Angular, but I do find it valuable in React. Now, take a step back. What I do enjoy about Angular too is its tight interaction with RxJS, mm. reactive programming. Again, it's been a while since I've been in the world of React, so a few years ago when I was working in a React uh, application, we were using reactive extensions, which aren't native to React like they are in Angular, but we found that, and I'll have to find, we'll add it to the show notes, but I'll have to find what package that was. But that provided the same level of state management. And from a UI point of view, I really like the approach of using reactive extensions, reactive programming to handling the UI interaction. So to circle back, you asked me what my thoughts are about the Redux pattern. That was a long-winded way to say, I think there's a place for it, but I also think that there's it's a lot of overkill for what we need. So I'm very much in the same boat as you. I like the MVVM approach. As you know, I'm Xamarin and Maui developer. Um, I've got a book about it. Do tell, uh, do I tell. I'm sure Angular. we haven't heard about that one. Probably never heard of my book. We can put a link in the show notes. I also prefer Angular. I also find it's more aligned with that same kind of paradigm and that same approach. I also like reactive programming, and I've also found that it can greatly enhance 
the way that you write a UI, whether it's in Angular, whether it's in React, even in Maui, you know, using reactive extensions started in .NET before it was mm -hmm. JS. So you've got reactive extensions in .NET yep. as well. My view is that the Redux pattern brings in extra complexity that inarguably is greater than any complexity you solve. Like the amount of complexity that you introduce through Redux is insane. And it brings just an unjustifiable amount of complexity until you need it. Mm -hmm. And then when you need it, you just can't do without it. So I think that's a great segue into other more common patterns and architectural decisions that people make where they don't actually take into account the overall complexity of what they're adding. And they just like to do things because it's the latest, greatest thing that everyone else is doing. And the one that comes to mind there is microservices. Yes. Everybody wants to do microservices because it looks good on your resume, because it's good to say, yes, I've worked in this microservices architecture, I've used Kubernetes and I've got it all set up and it's all great. But how many applications out there actually warrant the effort in involved in building a microservices application. Liam, it's RDD, resume-driven development. That's true. And I think that happens quite a lot. So I guess the lesson from all this is that we evidently do care quite a lot about our code. Look, honestly, I think so. Now, one of the other pieces of wisdom that was, or actually, I've, there's two more things that have come from my past that I'd like to raise here. And one was, I guess, on this topic of does anyone care about your code was to write your code like there is a seven foot tall axe murderer running after you with a chainsaw that is going to be reviewing your code, right? Okay. In the idea being, let's make sure it's readable. Let's make sure it's clean. Let's make sure it's tidy because there's some guy behind me that I don't want to piss off. Right? You don't want to piss off the person that's maintaining your code down the track. Yeah, especially, and we've discussed this before, right? Especially given that that person is almost certainly you. Exactly. That's it. And then the only other thing that I, again, I think this was going all the way back to the beginning of my career. I remember a manager of mine who sat me down. He's like, I can tell you know what you're doing and I can tell you really understand what you're doing and you're good at what you're doing and you, you're really getting all these concepts and you're getting really fancy with what you're doing. But you got to remember, you may not be the person that is maintaining that code. And the people coming behind you have no idea what you're thinking right now. And again, it might be you. It probably is going to be you in two months time or two weeks time. You're not going to remember what you were thinking. But as much as you think you're being smart by making things complex and really fancy, you can be doing a disservice to the product. You're making it less maintainable. So in that respect, this is that sort of tongue-in-cheek joke I made at the beginning when you said nobody cares about your code. And I said, well, I think there are people that do. This is sort of coming back to it. I think we do need to make sure that the code that we write is legible, it's maintainable, people can understand it. Because ultimately, if there are bugs in your code, and more often than not, there will be, or if someone needs to optimize it or whatever else, people need to make sense of it. And in that respect, people do care about your code. Yeah, I do agree. And as we've, I guess, proven over the course of this chat, we do care these things are important. I'm just going to play devil's advocate again, because a year ago, a year and a half ago, I would have agreed with you unquestionably. But now there's a very easy way that I can take code that I can't read and can't understand in small chunks. I can paste it into ChatGPT yeah. and say, tell me what this code does. Absolutely. I can even paste it into ChatGPT and say, refactor this, it's too complex. Give me a simpler version. Yep. And seven or eight times out of 10, it works. Mm -hmm. Still can't get ChatGPT to design me a good UI though. No. Can you ask it to describe your good UI? Then you can cut and paste that description into DALI and get that to render out a UI for you. You're right. And then I can take that image that DALI has rendered, paste it back into ChatGPT and say, give me some CSS and HTML for this. Exactly. Now, 
I have seen examples, even predate ChatGPT, where they whiteboarded a UI, pushed the button, and the HTML spat out. I can't remember where I saw that one. There was actually a Microsoft app called Ink to Code from Microsoft Garage. We use the Microsoft Ink API, so this is the same thing that you get in OneNote, where you could just draw on the screen. You could draw out a UI, and it would generate code based on that. And that was pre-ChatGPT. Maybe that's the one I was looking at. Maybe. More recently, shared this week, this was on LinkedIn, something called Draw to App. And this is the same thing. And this just happens in your browser. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your desktop, whatever. You just draw something on the screen and it will generate an app for you. It generate the code, not just the layout and the UI. But in the example that they show in the video that I saw, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. Someone basically drew on the screen. It was very simple, but illustrated the point. They drew a little box that said dollars US and another one that said EUR and then some arrows pointing between them and a button that said convert. And then they click the button to generate the app and it generates a, a little web app and it works. And they put in the, the numbers and it does the currency conversion and everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, is that where we're heading? Yeah, well, it reminds me of what we were talking to Yuli about a few weeks ago. The nature of the work that we do is changing. Mm -hmm. And I was making a glib remark about no one cares about your code, but the extent to which that's true now is nothing compared to the extent to which it's going to be true five, 10 years from now. Yeah, I think you're right. All right. Well, I think, you know, we've got, we've got what, maybe five, 10 years of, of enjoying sitting on our laurels and being proud of the code that we're writing and how clean it is. So let's enjoy it while it lasts. Exactly. Five, would you say five to 10 years? Look, given the progress that's happening at the moment, I'd be interested to see, or even to get an idea about what the average lifespan of code that's written these days is. That would be interesting. I wonder how we would get that metric. You go back many, many years and there's still a lot of legacy applications out there that are in larger organizations. They're running the mainframes or stereotypical DOS applications that are running some very bespoke hardware that it's too too hard to update or these companies have gone out of business and they don't exist anymore. So they're around, they're going to be around for a while and then they'll slowly, slowly die off like the dinosaurs. There's applications from the start of my career 20 years ago. One of the early applications I worked on, I found out recently was still in production. But how long will that actually be the status quo? I believe and I think that we're heading to a point where every 12 months they're releasing a new version of .NET. Every 12 months is a long-term support release, but each long-term support release is supported for two years, is it? So to close out this discussion, I think it's interesting to think, what is the life cycle of our code these days? And can we measure it? Because if we think way back when, back all the way back at the beginning, when you had punch cards, you had to make sure your code was 100% accurate before you invested in getting your punch cards made up and run it through the system. Then after that, there was the time when you'd have to book time with your compilers. So you'd do a lot of desk checking. That's back in the days when you'd do your desk checking. You'd print your code out and you'd go line by line with your pen and paper and you'd check it all first because it was expensive to compile those applications. And these applications were in production for a long time. Then they're running the mainframes. They're the ones that are running the big banks that the banks cannot afford to change these applications. And these they're running for a long time. Then we get to the point where you're installing desktop applications. So you've got users that have to install them locally on their machines. So again, we can't provide the patching. We can't update them as frequently as we'd like to. So there's longevity. There's a life cycle for those desktops. Maybe not as long as the mainframes or the applications that predated that, but they still have a life cycle. These days where the majority of the enterprise code that we write now is for SaaS-based applications, what is the life cycle of the line of code or that function that we're writing right now? Keeping that in mind, 
how much do we really need to invest in whether or not the person behind us cares about the code that we're writing? It's a good question. I feel like I'm leading myself inexorably toward an answer that I'm not brave enough to say out loud. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if we've actually come up to an agreement or a consensus on whether or not others care about our code or whether we should. But I think it's been an awesome discussion about the balance we need to take when we're writing our code, when we're asking the questions of the product managers or the end users, when we're really actually looking to the complexity we're adding into our code and whether or not we need to actually make it more complex than it has to be. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We, we need to find that balance. The people that consume our code, whether, that, whether it's a UI application or not, they're not really going to care. What they want is, does it do the job I want it to do? Does it do the job I want it to do in a time that I want it to do it in? If it's a UI app, is it easy for me to use? Is it nice to look at? Beyond that, they don't really care. Until, of course, they do. So until someone says, now I found this bug months later, and you can point back at your tech debt log and you say, told you so. (laughs) Not only told you so, but this is now going to take six months to fix. So can we rename this episode title from nobody cares about your code to your customer doesn't care about your code? The end user doesn't care about your code. We can, but nobody cares about your code is more clickbaity. I know. That was more of a rhetorical question. You weren't meant to answer that. Oh, well, can you cut that out then? We can always try it again. Perhaps we should rename this episode, Your Customer Doesn't Care About Your Code. Maybe, maybe. Let's uh, mull that over uh, over a beer. Sounds good. Speaking of beers, you still on the zeros? Yep, I'm on the Four Pines Ultra Low again this week. It's very good. I enjoyed it. I'm not far off, I think, getting back onto real quote-unquote beer. I actually had my blood tests last week and an appointment with my endocrinologist today, just before the show, actually, and everything's looking really good. So really happy. Health is improving massively. Awesome. Well, I think, and you know, I don't want to ruin the surprise for everyone, but I think we're planning on a, an actual catch-up for the next recording sometime after Christmas. So hopefully we'll be able to share a beer together then. Oh, we definitely will. Yeah, sounds good. So that's it for this episode of the Beer Driven Devs. I'm Liam Elliott. I'm Matt Goldman. Cheers. Cheers. The Beer Driven Devs podcast is recorded and produced on Dorawal and Darkinjung land. 